The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. We are in our final service of the year. That's if you don't go tomorrow. But uh, the service tomorrow is just like this one, so there really would no no reason to go tomorrow other than that you're, maybe you have to be here. But this is it. This is the last one of the year. And I cannot pick a better topic than this one to end the year with joy and thanks and gratitude and celebration of the King of Kings. It doesn't matter what kind of a year you had. Maybe 2016, you're just so glad that's over and you're ready to move on to something better. Or it was the best year of your life and you're living large or it was boring. It doesn't matter what 2016 was. It is still the occasion to finish it off by saying to God, you are King of Kings. You are Lord of Lords. You are worthy of praise and we give you all the glory. So no matter what it was, that is the absolute best response. Maybe something from Psalm 98, which actually happens to be the text of which the carol is based on today. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous singing and sing praises. That's what I'm talking about. You had a great year. That's your song. But what if he had a terrible year? Then you would probably choose something like the Apostle Paul. He's languishing in prison. He says this, For the sake of Christ, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in suffering. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So no matter where you are at this year, you have a great response either way. The carol that we're looking at today is Joy to the World. What a joyful, happy song this is. One of my favorites. absolutely love it. It was written in 1719. That's 297 years ago. It was written by Isaac Watts. He, like Charles Wesley, was a writer of many carols of the church and hymns of the church. More than 750 hymns that he wrote. Some people refer to him as the father of Christian hymns. One of his, hit, couple of his hymns that are maybe well known that you would remember, he wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or At the Cross, At the Cross, Where I First Found My Light. Uh, he wrote both of those. But he wrote Joy to the World, and he wrote it based on Psalm 98. It was not intended to be a Christmas carol. And you know that right from the very first line. Joy to the World, the Savior has, no, not has, is, come. Because he's not talking about the birth of Christ. He's talking about the return of Christ. And he bases the whole message off of Psalm 98. And when you read Psalm 98, there's no mention of shepherds or a manger or wise men or babies or angels. There's none of that. It is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what happened? Well, 100 years later, 1839, 
A guy by the name of Lowell Mason, he grabbed the tune, he adapted it somewhat, arranged the melody, and voila, we have the song the way we sing it today, and it's associated with, Christian, with Christmas. Nobody knows why. There is no record or no story that explains how this became associated with Christmas, only that there is a legend that Handel wrote the melody. Can't be confirmed, just legend, some people think. Well, the song became associated with Christmas, and since the original message that he had was the second coming of Christ, I think that should be our focus this evening. Let's go with the original intent, and let's look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. After all, what reminds us more of that than Christmas, right? His birth tells us he's coming again. So let's look at that. God does everything in perfect timing. God is never late. He's never early. Everything he does is when he wants to do it, just as he wants to do it. His timing is absolutely perfect. You'll see that if you read the Bible a lot, you'll run into these phrases over and over and over, something like, at the appointed time, or in the fullness of time, which means at the absolute perfect time. You see these phrases over and over because God, what he does, he does everything perfectly and in his perfect time. I think that's one thing that frustrates us as as followers of Christ, is that God doesn't follow our timeline. I wish he did. There are many times when I feel he has definitely been late, but apparently he does not feel that way. So God is working in history from generation to generation, perfectly in time. The Old Testament, if you go into the Old Testament, you see the prophets were always writing about waiting, Isaiah talked about waiting, and Jeremiah prophesied about waiting, and Ezekiel was prophesying about waiting, because they were all waiting for something to happen. What was it? They were waiting for the Messiah. And so all these, these major prophets and minor prophets, they're prophesying, they're declaring all these truths about the Messiah, but they never saw him. Oh, how they wanted to. They longed for it, but they had to wait. And for all of them, they had to wait their entire lives to see the Messiah because when Jesus actually showed up on the scene, they were already long gone. And so their waiting was over. Can you imagine being alive during that time when Jesus had come on the scene can you imagine what the most important, pivotal moment of all of history? All of the angels were waiting for this moment, for the gospel to be revealed in Christ the babe. I even think that all of hell and all of the demons were just waiting on fingers and tiptoes and talons and noses for this massive God incarnate, God in us, God with us. And Jesus was born, and there wasn't any more waiting. In fact, Jesus even referred to this in Mark chapter 2. It says this, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples 
and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. The waiting time had ended, and the bridegroom was there. The waiting was over. But then Jesus ascended into heaven. And we go right back into a waiting time again. The second great wave of waiting has begun. Jesus ascended to the Father. He left earth. He went up to heaven. He released in the Holy Spirit to work among us. But now we are again in this worldwide season of waiting. We're all waiting. What are we waiting for? The return of the Messiah, the second coming. You know, I was thinking about this. There's a lot of danger in waiting. Waiting is a difficult, difficult thing. And depending on the circumstances or on how long you have to wait, the greater the danger of waiting. Take, for example, you this Christmas went to the wife with your mall. Went to the mall with your wife. Shopping. And instead of going and watching your favorite football team, although mine today is not the Seahawks. <laughs> instead of watching your favorite football team, you go shopping with your wife at the mall. Now, do you go with your wife like she requested, or do you stay home and watch football? All of that depends on how long you've been married. Because you know if you're newly married, you must go to the mall. Been married a while, you stay home, and your wife thinks you're a jerk. But there's a danger there, a danger in waiting. How about this scenario? You find the woman of your dreams, and you get married, and then all in a sudden, I mean, you knew it was coming, you were preparing for it. it, after all, it was your career, but you were given papers for deployment. So now you're sent off for a year or more, and you'll be separated from this love that you met, that you love. She's your sweetheart. And now she begins to wonder, will he be faithful to me while he's over there? And he begins to wonder, will she be faithful while I'm gone? Waiting is a very difficult thing in this case. And unless you have a very strong, committed marriage, the danger is there. I remember talking to a young woman, 22. 22, and she was crying. I said, what are you crying about? What's going on? And she said, I'm an old maid. Nobody will marry me. I'm too old. 
Oh, my dear. 22. Maybe you're waiting to have a child. In that case, that type of waiting is very difficult. And you're tempted to give up, to quit, to give in, and just say, I give up on you, God. It'll never happen. Or maybe you're waiting for healing. And day after day, month after month, it comes by, and you're not healed, and there's no good news coming from the doctors. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And the danger is that you would give up. Or maybe you're waiting for a a better financial outlook or anything, really. Waiting, there is a danger. And so God knew that. He knew that about us. And so he gave us some things that we could hold on to to help us in our season of waiting. And they are found in Matthew chapter 25. Actually, there are many. There are many. I've just chosen this one. And this is, if you have a Bible, you can see it in your Bible. This is the parable of the ten virgins. So let me read it briefly, and then we'll pick it apart and see what is Jesus saying to us about our season of waiting for his return. He says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. Remember, this is Jesus telling the story. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came And those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Before we get into this, we got to establish one or two things here about parables. Parables are difficult to understand. Their, their meaning can be difficult to find. And so you've got to understand that parables must be treated differently than other portions of Scripture that you read. You see, a parable only has one main point. And here's the reason why. If you begin to unpack a parable looking for multiple applications, the whole thing quickly unravels. And you may end off in some strange, bizarre concept of what God is. So they only have one main point. So be careful when you're looking for, oh, God is speaking to me in this parable. And what you're trying to analogize, you end up coming with just what you hoped you would see and not necessarily what the parable is actually saying. So we must be careful. 
This parable is a warning parable from Jesus about the in-between time. The time between the bridegroom coming and the marriage. First was the coming of the bridegroom. It was Jesus born Christmas morning. He walked for three years in a ministry, fulfilled the Old Testament, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, and thus began this new season of waiting. And when he returns, he will not return the way he came. He will return as the bridegroom coming for his bride. The church is the bride. Jesus is the groom. And this in-between time that we're in right now is the waiting time. The bride is waiting for the return of her groom. Now, right from the bat, Jesus tells us, verse 5, that he will be delayed. As the bridegroom was delayed, he says, there's going to be a delay. Jesus will not return when everyone expects it. He will return when people don't expect it. I'm sure all of the disciples and the apostles all believed that Christ would return for them, and he did not. So we don't know the hour, we don't know the time, but we know it will definitely be delayed. And this delay is mercy. It's mercy. This is the the delay season of mercy because every day that Christ delays his return is another day, another opportunity for someone to enter into his kingdom. Because when the time of waiting is over, the door is shut. And there is no longer any more opportunities for anyone to enter into the kingdom. So this is a season of mercy. But this is Jesus' warning. And his warning, I tried to come up with a, you know, what kind of a warning is this? This is a, this is a powerful, watch out, hey, be careful kind of a warning. Lots of exclamation points and, and powerful analogy and story and comparisons like, hey, there's a giant hole in front of you. It's full of rattlesnakes. Walk away. Not Hey, you might slip on the water. It's more dangerous than that. This is the ultimate danger. You'll die. So watch out. It's getting our attention. Wake up. Listen. This is so important. At any time, Jesus could return. But for now, out of sheer mercy, he delays. The virgins represent the church of God in his story. And this is not everybody. This is the church coming out to meet him. This is not the people who are not a part of the church. This is the church, the true disciples of Christ. They're coming out to meet him. And their job was to be prepared to bring light to his return. Their job was actually to wait. Waiting was their job. They were told to wait until the return of the bridegroom. Now their waiting wasn't just standing around waiting, waiting like we would do. 
Their waiting was their job, and their job was to provide light. But five of these virgins were foolish because they made an assumption. They made a deadly, deadly assumption that many people make. I've seen people make this assumption all the time. I always run into people who are basing their life off of this very same assumption. That is that one day they will be able to borrow someone else's faith. I don't need faith now because my parents are very faithful to God. I have a grandmother who really loves God, and when I need it, I'll latch on to her faith. Jesus said it is impossible to borrow someone else's oil, their faith. Now, he says they all slept. All ten of them slept, not just the wise ones, but the foolish ones. All of them, they all slept. And it isn't negative. The sleeping is not negative in this parable because the wise women slept as well. So if someone comes along and tries to tell you that this parable is all about watch out and wait for the hour because you do not know it, they've misinterpreted the parable. It's not about waiting right? It's not about sleeping. So what is the parable saying? Well, their sleeping is just a result of the normal day's work. It's just your daily life. It's Every person's life that you live, it's getting up and going to work and coming home and having a family and caring for your family, living your life day in and day out. That's exactly what they were doing. Regular life stuff. I cannot think of a better way to prepare for the return of Christ than the 20-minute mornings we do at our church. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be have your Bible out, you're in prayer, you're communing with the Lord, and boom, he returns in the sky, and there you go, you get lifted up. As opposed to being caught into some sort of repetitive sin that you're doing over and over and over, and Christ comes in that moment, I would rather be prepared, I would rather be in love with Jesus, ready for his return. That's what the 20-minute mornings will do for you. That's what it does. Helps you love him. Even if Jesus came after that, you would still be ready. Look at verse 6. At midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And if you compare that to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it's, Striking how similar they are. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet him in the air, and so we will be with him with the Lord forever.
loud sound, heard all over the whole world, and there is Christ. He's returned. Look at verse 7. Then all those virgins, they rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. A little foolishness always deepens foolishness. A little foolishness leads to deeper foolishness and deeper and deeper and deeper foolishness. The point of the answer is no. No, you can't have any of our oil. Yours will be empty. You have nothing. If there's nothing there, you cannot get it from anyone else. You cannot borrow faith. You cannot live your faith through someone else. Something that I see too much is I see men delegating their spiritual responsibility to their spouse. And the wife is the one who gathers the children together on Sunday. The wife is the one always initiating to go to church. The wife is always initiating for prayer because the husband is actually living out his faith through her and not himself. And Jesus says that's impossible. And anyone who does that will be caught unprepared when Jesus returns. You cannot go to heaven on someone else's faith. You cannot rely on your parents' faith. You must develop your own. I cannot give to any of you obedience to Christ. I can't give you that. You've got to do it yourself. All I can do is point you to it. Try and teach you, try and train you, show you implore you, but you must do the obedience yourself. It's not transferable. I can't transfer obedience to you. I can't transfer salvation to you. You must acquire it yourself. And so verse 10, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Guess what? Right now, the door is open. But I don't know how long it's going to be open. It very well could close this evening. Nobody knows when the door will be shut. Nor should we try to speculate. But we know for a fact, because Jesus is telling us, that the door will be shut. And not everyone will come in. Some will be left on the outside. Verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
Those are terrifying words. Terrifying words. I know people who say, but God, I have a lamp. I'm not one of those people out there. I'm not one of those bad people. I go to church. I even put money in the bucket from time to time. I go on Christmas. I go on Easter. I am not a bad person. I'm a good person, a good man, trying to be good. What Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. You've done all those things. You're one of the virgins. But you never cultivated a relationship with Jesus that was personal between you and him. You never took time when you had it. You've got time now. Plenty of time, you've got it. But if you don't take time, the door will be shut on you. Too many excuses. Oh, I was just so busy, and I had to do this, and I had to do that, and I was consumed with this, and then the time came, and there was no more time. You put things off. You say next year, and now it's too late. The door is shut. Finally, the very end, verse 13, watch therefore, for you not know neither the day nor the hour. And we know that the word watch doesn't mean go to sleep. It means be filled with Jesus, be filled with a relationship with him, know him, love him, walk with him, make him your greatest treasure of your life. Make Jesus your bridegroom. Love him with all of your heart. Do you know how you love Jesus? You love him the same way you love a person, but more. You love him with your time, right? Because when you love your child, you spend time with them. When you love your wife or your husband, you spend time with them? Do you love Jesus with your time? You love Jesus with your money because you love your wife, your spouse with your money, don't you? Yes, you honor her in how you handle the finances or you dishonor her in the way you handle them. You love God with your career. You love God with your emotions. You love the Lord through his word. You see, his word tells us how to love him. It's who he is. We love him through daily prayer and worship. Now this short little story told by Jesus, this warning parable, says one thing. It says, do not neglect your duty and do not give up or quit. Instead, receive the mercy that Jesus is offering you. Let him become your greatest treasure. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I, I want to specifically pray for those who are here tonight and they feel a poke in their heart because they know that their priorities are all wrong. You're not first in their life. You're not second or third. You, they don't even know where you are. You are nowhere in their top priorities. They just got consumed with life and left you out. And so now they're in danger of being shut out. Oh, Father, I plead with you that you would reveal your love to them in such a powerful way that they would not reject you, but receive you with all of their heart. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to lower their pride, lower their self, self-assuredness, their self-sufficiency, relying on themselves, made themselves their own God. Lord, help them to get past all of that and get to making you their greatest treasure. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord, during this time of waiting. May we not fail, but be faithful to the end. In Jesus' name.